It is a privilege for Diane and I to be here today. We did come over yesterday from uh, Tabor where the sun was shining and it was plus 10. Uh, but that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> no, we're very thankful to be here. It's a blessing for us and we appreciate the hospitality that Tom and you folks have shown us. Uh, this morning I am going to do what I've been asked to do, which is to share with you uh, some of the details of the events that took place in our family uh, almost 15 years ago now. Even my saying that sounds strange to me. Um, when you have huge events that happen in your life and tragedies come for just about all of us eventually in life, uh, they have a way of changing your life somehow. And time sort of changes too. So when I say it's been 15 years, it sometimes it doesn't feel like it's been 15 years. At any rate, as I share this story this morning, my prayer and my desire is that God would use this story once again to do whatever he needs to do in your life and, and, and all our lives together. And that we can grow together as we try to be the people that God calls us to be to see the changes in this world that he so desires. Let me take you back to 1999. Uh, in that year, 1999, uh, I had been at the little church in Tabor for about, um, I think about 12 years, 11, 12 years. And uh, uh, life had been going okay for our family. We were a normal family. Uh, Diane and I have five children. Uh, at that time, my two oldest sons had already graduated high school and they had moved off to Calgary. Life was going fine. April 28th was a Wednesday that particular year. Uh, that day started off like most normal days did for us. Uh, we got up that morning. We got our other three children ready and off to school. And then uh, that particular day, Diane and I had to leave Tabor to go into the city of Lethbridge, 50 kilometers west of us. And um, uh, we had to go in and do some shopping. Now, um, you know, that's not really a great thing for me because I'm not really a shopper kind of a guy. You know what I mean? But anyhow, we got into Lethbridge. We, we got our shopping done fairly quickly. Now, that is a good thing for me. <laughs> and uh, we immediately uh, wrapped up our business in Lethbridge and headed back to Tabor. Arriving to our home, I'm not quite sure. It was after, it's probably around one o'clock or so, something like that. Still walking through a day that seemed incredibly ordinary and normal. Now, as we were coming up the sidewalk to the front of our home that day, we could hear the telephone ringing inside the house. That's not an unusual thing. You know, pastors tend to get a lot of phone calls. But as I got the key out and was trying to open the door, the phone just kept ringing and ringing and ringing. And I began to sense that this was not an ordinary phone call. I got the door unlocked. I rushed in to grab the phone before it stopped. I picked up the phone. I said hello. And that's when our normal day changed dramatically. The voice on the other end of that phone call immediately said to me, Is this Dale Lang? I said, yes, it is. He said, well, this is the hospital calling. Your son, Jason, is in the emergency unit. It's very serious. You need to come here right now. I said, what happened? He said, I can't tell you over the phone. Please, 
come to the hospital immediately. I hung up that phone, already upset at that news. I shared that with Diane immediately. We both got into our vehicle to take the short five-minute drive to Tabor's small hospital. On that short drive, the only thing that Diane and I thought about or talked about was what could have happened to Jason. He was 17 years old, a grade 11 student in our public high school of 500 kids. As far as we knew, it was a normal day. Jason was in class at school. What could have gone wrong? As we turned in the driveway of the, uh, the parking lot to the hospital, uh, I remembered that Jason had purchased a used car just two days earlier. And I began to worry that he might have had a serious car accident with that car. Um, we parked. We rushed into the emergency unit. Uh, as we came in the door, the person who phoned us was waiting there for us. And he greeted us with the words, Jason has been shot. There's really no way to help you understand how shocking it was to hear those words. Out of all the things that we might have thought about that could have happened to our son that day, I can guarantee you we never would have thought about the possibility of our son being shot. I remember uh, I asked a question right away. I said, where was he? I think I asked that question because in our country, we just assume and believe that our schools are very safe places. I, I assumed he had to be off school grounds for this to happen. And the, the answer came back, well, well, Jason was shot at school. Well, that hit Dianonic a ton of bricks. Just eight days earlier, we had watched news coverage of the horrific school shooting that had just taken place in Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado, where 13 students were shot and killed by two of their own. Even though we'd just seen that in the news, I don't think, like in a million years, we could have believed it would ever happen anywhere near where we lived. It was unbelievable. At that point in time, Diane and I were in shock. Uh, we sat down in the waiting area. Uh, we prayed for Jason. And we waited to hear word in his condition. I can't tell you how long we sat in that waiting area. It felt like sort of an eternity in some ways. I'm sure it was only a few minutes. Finally, the door to the room uh, where the medical team was working to save Jason's life began to open. As we saw that door opening and someone was coming out, we stood up. A person came out of that room and began to walk towards us. And as I watched that person getting closer to me, the only thought I had was... I don't want to hear this. This person came over to us and very quietly said, Jason didn't make it. I've shared this story for the last 15 years, many, many times. But I really understand that there are never going to be words that could ever help any other person who hasn't gone through that to know what that feels like. I've never felt so alone or so empty in my life before. It was like floating in outer space, but there were no stars. It was just blackness and silence. It was unbelievable. Unbelievable pain, and I would never 
desire my worst enemy to have that kind of a moment in their lives. In the weeks that followed our son's death, we were blessed to receive literally thousands of cards and letters from people across Canada. People phoned us. People visited us. Uh, we, We knew people were praying for us. It was tremendous to be blessed in that way. But in the midst of all of that, every once in a while, someone would say something like this to us. You know, um, it will get easier as time goes by and you'll go back to normal life eventually. Now, I understand why people say that. Uh, they always mean well and are trying to be helpful. It's been almost 15 years since Jason was killed. And I can still stand here today and tell you that that's, those statements aren't exactly accurate. I think what's more accurate to say is that we have gotten used to living with the pain of losing our son. I don't believe that that pain actually totally leaves your life. There are still moments when I certainly feel emotional about that reality and wish it could be changed. That's not to say that God has not healed us. He has, and we'll explain that as we go on. But the reality is that it's a life-changing moment that no one should ever have to face or go through. Let me explain to you what took place in our school that day so you understand the story fully. About an hour before we were in the hospital, a 14-year-old boy came to our high school in Tabor. This young man had been a student in that school, but a couple of months earlier, his uh, parents had taken him out of the school and he was being schooled at home. He'd made a habit of coming back to the school most days at lunchtime. He would hang around outside the building and talk to a couple of the kids that he knew in that school. On this particular day, he had a conversation with one young man that went something like this. He said, I thought what those guys did at Columbine, I thought that was really cool. And I really, really want to know what it would feel like to actually shoot somebody. He then revealed that down the Uh, pant leg of his jeans, he had cut a hole in the pocket of his jeans, he had with him a loaded semi-automatic sawed-off 22 rifle. The boy who was listening to him that day and who saw the gun, well, he just thought that this guy was doing what kids often do, just bragging, just talking, just showing off. But when that conversation was over, that 14-year-old boy would walk around the school, he would enter the building through a side door, He would have the rifle in his hands as he came into the school that day. And as he came into the first hallway he was entering, there was a teacher passing by. He immediately pointed the rifle at her and he told her to get, he said, you get out of here right now. As that was taking place, a female student came out of a classroom directly across the hall from where he was standing. He then pointed the rifle at her, said the same thing to her. As those two people were moving out of his way, he turned to go down the hall. At that moment, our son Jason, along with two of his friends, were coming from their lockers. They were heading to English class. They came around the corner, and they came face to face with the boy who had the rifle. Jason did not know this boy. Jason's friends did not know who this boy was. And as we found out later, the young man with the rifle did not know who these three guys were. But he decided this was going to be his moment. And he fired the rifle uh, four times in quick succession. 
Two of the shots missed everyone that was there. One bullet entered the stomach of a young man named Shane. Uh, Shane has obviously recovered from his injuries now. Thankfully, it didn't kill him. Uh, Although I will tell you this, that even up to the present time, Shane has had tremendous struggles with bouts of depression, all stemming from what happened that day in 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 the hallway in the school. Our son Jason was shot that afternoon in the chest, above the heart near the collarbone. Jason uh, would lose consciousness three or four minutes after he was shot. By that time, the phys ed teacher of the school was with him. Uh, And once he lost consciousness that day, Jason would not regain it again. But he was not alone, thankfully. Five days after Jason's death, well, I guess the first question is, And people have always asked me this question so frequently. Why? It's the question everybody wants the answer to. Why would this 14-year-old boy come into the school and do that? That's a really good question. Unfortunately, it's one that I suspect no one, perhaps not even himself, will ever have the answer to that question fully. I will share a couple of things with you about this young man to help you understand a little bit what went on. This 14-year-old boy came out of a a home situation where his parents had divorced. After the parents divorced, uh, the mother moved the family from Ontario, where they were living, all the way to Alberta. Uh, This young man uh, was very uh, frustrated that he could only see his own father once or twice a year. It bothered him a lot. The second thing I can share with you about his life at that time is that he was a target. We all... Here, I think, understand what that means. We've all seen this. He was one of those kids that didn't fit in very easily. And so there were others in our community, in our school, other kids that decided he was someone that could be picked on and bullied. That would happen to him quite frequently through his middle school years. Uh, Even in the streets, not just at school, kids picked on him. It's my belief that on April 28th, For those reasons, and perhaps others, this young man reached a breaking point. He'd had enough. He'd watched the Columbine news coverage. He'd heard that the Columbine shooters were also ostracized and picked on at their school. And he began to see those guys as heroes because they'd done something to make a difference in their lives. I think he just had enough, and he was an angry, hurting young man, and he walked into that school today and expressed that anger and hurt in one of the worst possible ways that he could have. Not long after uh, Jason was shot, I was in a small town uh, speaking, where I was asked to speak. When I finished speaking, an elderly gentleman came up to me. I'm going to say he was probably close to 80, but I'm not sure. But he said to me um, a funny thing. He said, I think... I understand what that boy feels like, that boy that shot your son. I said, really? I said, why would you understand how he feels? He said, because. He said, I can remember when the kids used to pick on me at school. He said, I can remember it like it was yesterday. He said, I can still see all their faces. I remember their names. 
He says, I can still hear their voices and all the ugly things they used to say to me. He said, I remember it like it happened just yesterday, but it happened over 50 years ago. I know I said 60 years ago, actually. As I stood with that elderly gentleman, I was once again made aware of the power of words. And it made me realize that in my own life, I had not always used words kindly. And it challenged me to think about that because we don't know what other people are going through in life. And a word of kindness might bring a touch of healing. And a word of anger might bring more hurt than somebody can bear. It really challenged me to think about how I speak to other folks. Five days after April 28th, the following Monday, we walked back into the high school where our son was killed. Those five days, um, many, many things happened. And I, I wished we had the time to share all of it here with you today. But I, I know that your bottoms won't last that long. So I can't do that. But I will tell you that those five days, God moved in miraculous and mighty ways. Um, one of the things that happened was that Every one of those days, we had somewhere around 300 people a day come to our home. Many of them, we knew, we knew some of them, of course, and some of them we knew barely, and others were strangers. And in the midst of that, a lot of the students from the school came, and teachers. And we became incredibly aware of the fear that was gripping the school community, of the sadness that they were experiencing, and God put it on our heart that we should hold the memorial service for our son right in the school to begin the process of healing the school community that Jason had been a part of. So we walked back into that school five days later. The building was packed with people. The gymnasium was filled to capacity. There was people in the hallway. There was a school across the road from that school. They, had, they were bringing the uh, TV telecast into that school because there was an overflow of people there. There was people out in front of the school. It was just, uh, and there was media everywhere. It was really quite an unbelievable situation. Um, in the middle of the memorial service, uh, our family, we felt God had told us to do this, stood up. And we left the auditorium, the gymnasium. We walked out the doors and down the hallway and around a corner to the spot where Jason had been shot. They had the news media there and they had cameras following us and it was being broadcast back into the gym and on television, I guess. And um, we felt we were supposed to go to that spot and pray for the entire school at that spot. A family uh, together and some friends as well came with us and we did that. We did it and we felt really uh, relieved at being able to do that. We prayed over the whole school. We asked God to you know, cast out the forces of evil. We asked God to, 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 to bless and, and be with the children and the young people of that school and the teachers. Now, it meant a lot for us to do that. I did not know until afterwards that it seemed to mean a tremendous amount to the students and the staff of the school. Many of them came to us afterwards and said that that seemed to change something for them. They they began to feel like maybe this was okay to come back to school because many of them were so fearful. And then at the end of that service, I stood up to close the service in prayer. I had not thought ahead of time what I might pray. 
As I began to pray, I prayed for Jason and I gave thanks for his life. He was a, a good kid. We loved him greatly like we love all our children. And uh, it was uh, sad to not be able to have many more. But we were thankful for the 17 years we had him. And then my prayer turned to the boy who shot our son. And I uh, asked our community to support this young man's family. And I forgave this young man. Uh, I asked our community to support his family because I was afraid people might want to pick on that family after what had taken place. Now, we did meet with this young man's mother a few weeks after the shooting. And uh, thankfully, she was able to let us know because uh, we wanted to support her. We decided to meet with her. And, and be, but she let us know that the, the family was not being picked on. That was wonderful. But at the end of it all, it's all about forgiveness. And I have come to share that reality with you because this is the central focus of what God did in our circumstance. This is the way in which he poured out grace in a way that is almost hard to understand. But I want to share with you a little bit about what God has taught us about forgiveness. You know, I'd been a pastor for quite some time before Jason was killed. And I had taught about forgiveness numerous times. And... Uh, but you know, it's a little different when you have to actually live it in some of the hardest circumstances that we can imagine, right? And so I want to share with you what God has taught me about that. The question that has come over, over 15 years many times is, and people, I'll give this talk, I'll finish the talk, I'll step down and somebody will come up to me and say, but I don't understand how you could forgive this boy. And that's a good question. How does that happen? Because in the midst of one of the most painful things that a parent could experience, how is that even possible that we can get to the place of forgiveness? Well, I'm going to share briefly with you my journey to the, to the place of forgiveness because I think it's important. I can't, I can't ignore it. And my road to forgiving the boy who killed our son began way back in 1977. Uh, that was an interesting year for me because that was the year my first son was born, our, my son Jeff. Uh, Diane and I had, as I said, five children. And uh, on that particular um, April, uh, in those days, uh, I flew these things, hot air balloons, and I still fly them, but in those days I did it for a profession. And I was hired to go to the Arctic and uh, work with an oil exploration company up there using a hot air balloon in their on-ice operations. Um, so I went to the airport and um, uh, Diane was seeing me off and uh, she was uh, well along in her pregnancy. And I remember at the airport saying, don't have the baby until I come home. <laughs> I did say that to her. And I went off to the Arctic. Well, a week and a half later, a radio message comes in when I'm in the high Arctic and it says that Diane has had our first son. And I'm thinking, no, that's not right. I said, she, I told her to wait. <laughs> and I know she heard me, so I'm sure she's waiting. <laughs> well, no, actually, she had the baby. And when I finally was convinced about that by some of the guys at the camp that I was on, um, it struck me uh, quite, quite impactfully. It was really quite an, one of those moments, you know. I wished I was back in Calgary. But what I did was uh, I walked off across the Arctic ice because I was in the high Arctic with this company and we were out right out in the Arctic ice. And I walked off about 300 meters just to stand on the ice by myself. 
If you've never been to the high Arctic, um, I would suggest if you get a chance, go. Not to live necessarily, but it is an amazing place for many reasons. One of the things that was so amazing to me was when you got away from other folks on the ice, it was complete and utter silence. There are no birds in the air. There's no anything doing anything. It's just silence. And I stood in this moment of incredible silence thinking about my wife and my son back in Calgary, wishing I was with them. And in the midst of that moment, something took place. And I can remember the words very precisely. This thought dropped into my head. The time I did not know where it came from, I I do now. Um, The thought was, there's more to life than you understand right now, Dale. There's more to life than you can see with your eyes. I remember thinking, wow, that is the weirdest thing. I have no idea where that thought came from, but I'm just going to ignore that. That's crazy. You see, in those days, um, I was a nice guy, I think. I think I had friends and stuff, but, you know, uh, I was living for myself. It was all about me, what I wanted, what I liked. I was young. I was probably more arrogant than I would ever admit to. And I just was going to live life and enjoy it. That's all I, I thought that's what life was about. Just let's have fun. You know, you hear that in our culture constantly, right? Let's just have fun in life. Let's just enjoy life. And that's how I was living. And I was a pretty nice guy. I did have friends and stuff. But that moment that happened in the Arctic, it wouldn't leave me alone. I got back home and life went on. I saw my son. It was exciting to see him and amazing to see uh, this little creation there. I, I thought, well, I don't think I really had much to do with this. this I, I don't know how to create this. Uh, this is, I don't know what this This is amazing. And that thought that came to me in the Arctic wouldn't leave me alone. To make a long story short, I began to search out, what was life all about? Was there more to life than I thought before? Was there more than just my own selfish happiness? Eventually, I began to read this book, and I was reading about Jesus, and I was reading the injustice of how a lot of folks who were very angry put him on a cross to die, and then I got to the part where he says out loud, as he looks at this crowd who are still mocking him and calling him names, he says to, the, to, to God, he says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And I knew at that moment in my heart that this was not an ordinary person who could say that. To have been unjustly put to death in a painful and horrible way by people who were calling you names and mocking you and, and doing all kinds of undesirable things to you and say, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing is not a normal human response. Now, a little while later, I was out with my family visiting uh, my mother and father-in-law's home. We used to go out there. Families get together as they do. And I was uh, by myself. I was in a small room. Um, Some people would say I was sitting on a throne. Uh, You'll get that as you think about it. And... um, I just was there and I just 
I said to myself, you know, I, I really, God, I, I know that Jesus is your son. I know it in my heart. I've thought about this for some time. And I want a relationship with you. And I know he's the key. He's the one. And so I'm going to accept him into my life. I didn't even know how to say that prayer, folks. But I somehow did. And at that point in time, I became a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, I share that story with you about forgiveness because, about that story, because that was the beginning of the journey that made it possible for me to forgive the boy who killed our son. Before uh, that moment in time, I was living for myself. It was all about me. But once God, once I had said yes to Jesus, then he began this incredible thing that nobody warned me was going to happen. He began to change what was inside of me as a person. Began to soften my own heart. Began to heal things in me. Brought me to a place of having a capacity where I could love people more than I had ever loved them before. My family, friends. Strangely enough, uh, I began to love people I didn't even like a whole lot. Because we all have those kind of folks around in our lives sometimes, right? People that are tough to deal with. I began to care about some of those folks. And I knew that God was doing a work in me. And that was critical on the day that Jason died. See, I understand that Christianity is not really just a set of religious practices. Christianity is a relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ. And in any relationship situation, people are changed, right? When I married my wife, it's taken me 41 years, but you know, I've got her sort of, you know, she watches football games sometimes now with me and stuff like that. You know, and I, and I, and I, and I do some cleaning that I never used to do. You know, what I mean? you know what I'm saying? Relationships change us, right? And it's in that relationship with Jesus Christ that, that God was changing me. And on that day, 15 years ago, when our son was shot, I want you to know something. When they came to us in the hospital and said that Jason didn't make it, I want you to understand what happened after that. A few minutes later, someone came along and said, you can go into the room where Jason's body is for a while if you want to. Um, so we, we had to go in. We didn't really want to, but we had to go in. This was our son, and we had to go into that room. Once again, there are no words to help you understand what it was like to walk into that room, to see our 70-year-old son laying on that table, kind of look like he was asleep, but to know that he would never get up off that table again and speak to me in this lifetime was so, so difficult, so heartbreaking. In that room, Diane and I cried together for a while, and then uh, we prayed together. And after a few minutes, I came out of that room when I came out of that room, I began to pace back and forth in front of the door to that room. And as I walked back and forth, the anger was building in me. I was getting angry. At that very moment, I began to think about the boy who shot our son. I did not know his name. I know nothing about him. But I began to feel this great anger, and I began to think about him. And because of this lifelong relationship that I had been working on with God, he spoke right in that moment and he said to me, he said, the young man is a very broken, hurting, messed up young man. And that began to take away my anger. And then I began to think of 
how challenging life is for so many people around me at the time, and still is for lots of folks. And I'm thinking, how could this happen in Canada, this wonderful country we live in, where we have all the advantages, but there are still so many people who are hurting. And God drained all the anger out of me right there in front of that door. And in total honesty to you, I have not been angry at that young man ever since. Never felt that I wanted to go to that place of anger again. And then when the moment came at the memorial service and I said that I forgave this young man, you need to understand, I didn't, I didn't know what that was going to mean to me at the time. I didn't plan to do that particularly. Diane and I didn't sit down and think about, well, what should we do here as good Christian people? We were in pain. But out of that relationship, that lifelong relationship that we were developing with, with the Lord, His grace came in. And our response from his heart, not our hearts, from his heart, was forgiveness. And I didn't understand what it was going to mean to me. About three, four months later, I'm in Medicine Hat, Alberta, at a church one Sunday evening speaking. I finish speaking. I step off a platform very similar to this one. And I'm just standing here. And a lady in the back corner, she begins to walk down the side aisle very quickly. She comes across the church to get to me before anybody else. And she says, I cannot understand how you can forgive the boy who killed your son. She said, my daughter was killed five years ago by a drunken driver. And I have been angry about that ever since. And I am still angry. How can you forgive this boy who's done this to your family? I stood there and I looked in the eyes of that lady. And I saw the pain. And I saw the anger that she had. And... I began to understand what forgiveness was all about. Because if I had not been able to forgive the boy who killed our son, I would still be living in that place of anger and bitterness that she was living in. You know, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, I'm going to read this verse to you. It's right after Jesus gives the Lord's Prayer. He says, For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And I thought about that passage because it seemed kind of, that's a very strong word, isn't it? I mean, that's pretty strong stuff. Jesus isn't giving me an option here. He's not giving us an option. Forgiveness is mandatory. It's a necessary thing. It's not optional as a follower of Jesus Christ that we must forgive. And I understand a little bit better why that is today, you see. I uh, am another, just another person. I'm not a special person. I'm just another person. And I have my struggles and my challenges just like we all do. But when I get hurt by somebody, my response is to build some walls around myself, right? I, I don't want anybody getting too close because... I don't want to get hurt. And I've been hurt, and I'm going to build some walls to protect myself. And I also don't want anybody getting too close to try to convince me to stop being angry. Because somebody did something that was unjustified and it hurt me, and that's wrong. And that's true. It is wrong. The problem is, when I build those walls, I'm keeping everybody out, including God. And when I build those walls... There is no way 
that God can begin the process of healing my wound because I've got these walls up. Jesus didn't say in some harsh way, if you don't forgive your history, your toast, because you haven't paid attention to God. He's saying it because we need to come to that place of being able to let go of the things that have hurt us so that God can heal them. So that God can step in and begin the process of healing our hearts. When I said at the beginning that the pain never totally leaves, I, I mean that. But I also said that that doesn't mean God hasn't healed us. Because God has healed our family. It's a work in progress. But He's healing us. Forgiveness, I define in a really simple way. If you think about somebody or you look at somebody who has really wounded you deeply and you feel peace in your heart, you've reached the place of forgiveness. And you know that's not always easy to do. People have asked me, how could you forgive right at the memorial service for your son? How could you forgive the boy who killed him? That's a good question. And the only answer I have is Jesus. The only answer I can give you is Jesus did it. I wasn't capable of doing it. I could never have been capable of doing that. Jesus did it. But you know, sometimes it takes a longer time frame. But the key question is, are we willing, you and I, are we willing to forgive the people who've hurt us? And even if we don't feel like it, and even if we're still feeling anger, if we start the process of saying, God, I want to forgive Please help me forgive. It might take time, but eventually we will get to the place of being healed. And you know what that means when you get healed? That means you're free. If I was angry at the young man right now who killed our son, he would be controlling my life. And he doesn't even know me. He, he, didn't, he wouldn't care if I hated him. He, he wouldn't care. It wouldn't be doing him any harm or changing anything for him. It just keeps on damaging me and my family. When we, with the grace of Jesus Christ, can take that step of beginning to forgive the people who hurt us, even if it takes some time to get there, God will be faithful and he will bring the healing that will take you to the place, take me to the place of being free. I'm not trapped by that young man. I'm not trapped by thoughts of him. I pray that he gets the healing and the help that he needs. But I don't need to feel angry at him. I don't need to feel... I don't even... You know, I didn't even need justice to happen in one sense. When people say, well, you know, don't you think you should get a harsher penalty than he got? I said, I don't care about the penalty. I said, the question is, can he get the help? Will people help him so that he doesn't do this to anyone else? That was what my heart's desire has been and Diane's heart's desire has been. Forgiveness... Also, I need to say this. It's very important. Forgiveness doesn't mean that we just let people keep on abusing us. Okay? Sometimes in relationships there, there's problems and somebody keeps getting abused over and over again. We don't, we don't leave people there. That's not a good thing. That's not what God wants. We need to move people out of abusive situations sometimes. That's just necessary sometimes. But when we choose that little path of forgiveness, it will set us free. And the thing about it is, it touches a lot of lives. When I had no idea when we started to talk about forgiveness that it would impact other people a whole lot. But I, I, can't, I could tell you stories 
of how it reached people in Canada and how it reached people in our community. I remember the prosecutor in the case for this young man because as soon as he'd done the shooting, not long after, he was taken into custody right in the school. Um, the prosecutor came out that summer to tell us about the progress of the case and ask us some questions. And I forget what it was, but he did. And, and he was there and he said, uh, he said, I have one more thing I need to say to you, you folks. He said, when our office has a case like this, he said, inevitably, what happens is we get sometimes hundreds of phone calls and letters telling us that the laws aren't strong enough, that we need to do more, that we have to change this, we have to change that. He said, every case we've had like that, we've had those kinds of calls. He said, but in your case, we have not had one phone call. He said, I can only contribute that to the fact of how you folks have responded to the situation. I'm not taking credit for that, but Jesus did that. Forgiveness heals ourselves. It's for ourselves. It's not saying that what somebody did to me was okay. It's not okay that that boy shot my son. It will never be okay. It's not acceptable. I'm not saying it is, but I'm saying that I'm choosing the path of freedom and healing and praying that he gets the healing he needs, that that will never happen again. Forgiveness is an amazing gift that God gives us. You know, in uh, the 18th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, I won't read it, but Peter says to Jesus, well, how often do we have to forgive? Is seven times. Seven times is a good number, perfect number by biblical standards. Is that enough? And Jesus' response to Peter, you might remember, was, Well, Peter, I tell you not seven times, but seven times 70. Now, for you mathematicians who are multiply that out and know it's 490, that's not what he meant either. What he was saying was endlessly, right? That we must be able to accommodate the idea of forgiving the people who hurt us on an endless basis. Because in the world that you and I live, we're going to get hurt again. It's going to happen to us all. Happens to me, happens to you, it's going to happen. We need to walk in that, make that part of our way of living life is to forgive those who hurt us. To forgive those who hurt us. I know you've been doing a series on forgiveness and I probably overextended some thinking about that, but I really, I, I so know that God heals when we can open up the doors and forgive. I so know that, that I, I just pray that that's where you live today. I'm going to share one last story and then I'll be done. The story is about my son, Jason. I mentioned way back in the beginning of this talk that Jason had purchased a used car uh, two days before he was killed. Now, this was Jason's first car. And like a lot of young folks, he was pretty excited about the idea of getting his own set of wheels and having that kind of freedom. The car Jason purchased was a 1983 Camaro sports car, so he thought it was pretty cool. had a T-top roof that came off. It was black. Um, it had, um, had a big, loud, booming CD player, which wasn't my favorite part. Um, but he thought this was a great car. But there was a challenge for Jason because it had a standard transmission of four-speed, and he'd never driven anything but automatics. So he had to figure out how to drive this car and use the clutch and stuff. And Tuesday night, Jason got in that car with his two best buddies and they went off driving. He was practicing shifting. 
When he came home later that evening, he came to me and he said, Dad, um, I have some time tomorrow morning before I have to be in class at school. He said, I was wondering um, if you um, might be able to come with me on a drive in the morning just to make sure I'm shifting the car properly. I said, well, Jason, your mom and I have to go to Lethbridge tomorrow morning, but maybe we could fit that in before we go. So early that Wednesday morning, Jason and I got up and we got into his car and we drove around Tabor for about 20 minutes, half an hour. Now, Jason uh, was usually uh, a really kind of a quiet kid. He wasn't loud and boisterous. He wasn't super outgoing. But on that morning, on that drive, in that car that he was so excited about, this 17-year-old quiet kid, well, he just couldn't shut up. <laughs> like he was just way too excited about getting his car. And he was doing fine with the driving. That's not what I found interesting that morning. What I found interesting was Jason himself because he was so excited and you could see the joy in his eyes and every parent knows how good it feels when your kids are enjoying life. It just feels great. We drove around for about half an hour, like I said, and finally time to, to go back home and he had to go to school. We pulled up in front of our house. I hopped out of the car. I said, Jason, you have a good day. I'll see you later. He said, yeah, Dad, I'll see you after school. I closed the door, and he drove away. As I watched that black Camaro go around the corner out of sight that morning, there was no way for me to know that that was going to be the last time that I would see my son alive in this life. I look back on that very unusual drive we took that morning as a wonderful gift that God granted me that day. But here's the most important part of it. On the last day of my son's life, he and I were the best of friends. It wasn't always that way. There were days when Jason and I would argue and he would go to school sometimes mad at me and I was mad at him. And there were times when we stayed mad at each other for two or three days in a row. I'm so thankful that day wasn't one of those days. And God brought me to the text in Ephesians, I think it's chapter 4, where Paul is speaking and he says, Do not give the devil a foothold in your life. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, I'm not perfect at this. Diane could stand up and probably give you a hundred examples of why I'm not perfect at this. But since that point in time, I have tried to make sure that I don't leave home angry. That if I have an argument with somebody, that we settle it up as quickly as we can. Because there are no guarantees what's going to happen in the next five minutes or the next five hours. And I just don't want to take any chances anymore. You know what? God grants us the grace to be able to forgive, to be able to let go of our anger quickly, to heal our relationships, and to move on in our lives. And to bring that healing to the hurting world that's out there outside the walls of this building today. I leave with you those thoughts that God speaks to your heart today and I pray that we can become the kind of people that can love the unlovables. Love the unlovables. Everybody has people in their lives that are frustrating that you wish would go away. 
uh, Graham Cook, one of the a teacher that I listen to from time to time in the church, he said, people who irritate you will never go away. He said, if you get rid of one of those people, he said, it won't matter. God will bring another one right back in. And he said, the reason God does that is because they're called grace growers. They're there to grow grace in you and I. And I love that imagery. And it teaches me that no matter how irritating somebody is, God still calls me to love those people. Let's take a moment to pray. Lord, we thank you that this is a day you have made and we can rejoice in it. Holy Lord, we are so, so amazed at how you forgive us. And we pray that we have uh, within us your Holy Spirit to encourage us and strengthen us to forgive those who hurt us. And Lord, even though the world is so difficult sometimes, May we still love the folks out there with your true compassion and love. We thank you, Lord, for your gift in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.